We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. This is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Olnett. We're so excited to bring you another episode of Women Worth Knowing. Right. We really like doing this. Um, We just love finding these women and bringing them to you because I really think that these women have had a profound effect on our lives. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you see how they influenced history and stuff. But I feel like it's just also sweet that they influence our lives and can make an impact. And I know from some of the responses we've had from you guys that you're feeling the same way. So that's good. (laughs) You know, really, I really think this is uh, just such a great idea in the times that we're living at to look at noble women mm-hmm. and yeah. and just see that against all of these odds, they did these incredible things. Mm-hmm. God is still on the move. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So today I have a character. Mm. She is a character. More in of a half. character than Pauline Hamilton. She was quite a character. Much more. Oh, whoa. Okay. You're going to be like, <laughs> on this program, though, we like characters, right? Yeah, that's totally fine. We embrace that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Her name is Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. Oh, And she okay. was not only a doctor, she was also a brilliant and courageous woman, um, but she was a character. <laughs> she was also a surgeon. Hmm. Um, she was willing to go against conventional convention convention (laughs) for what she believed in and wait till you hear her story so she was born in oswego new york on november 26 1832 and she was the youngest child of alva and vesta's seven children so alva and vesta had six girls and one boy Oh, she's the youngest so her parents were devout christians i mean they were ardent Christians, and they raised their children to be deeply committed to the Lord, to truth, and to justice. Mm. Now, here's where we get into the interesting part. For their time, even though they were devout Christians, Mary's parents to their neighbors and to their culture seemed very progressive. Now, again, we're in the 1830s, right? Right. And they seemed very, very progressive. And you know why? Hmm. because they insisted that all their girls have an education. Um, That was one. Yeah, that makes sense. Two, um, they had a farm, and they insisted that all their children join in all the farm labor. Oh. So in those days, girls were restricted, how, how do you say, to household labor, right? Right. Girls yeah. did domestic. things. Right, yeah. domestic. Yeah. You know, clean the oven. That would be probably the worst of it. You know, maybe bring in wood or, you know. Bring in wood for bring sure. Bring in water. Um, but embroidery and, you know, cleaning and, you know, dishes, cooking. Mm-hmm. But no, they believed that all the children should share equally in all the chores hmm. on the farm. That was one. But also Mary's mother. Now, this is really really interesting, insisted that her girls wear appropriate attire for the laborious jobs, whether they were working in the fields, you know, uh, the orchards, or with the animals. So appropriate attire. Do you know what that was? Oh, boy. I can. What would it be? Like full dress, full? No, just the opposite. Slacks. trousers and that's super revolutionary (laughs) super super duper for that time yes for that time because you know as i said in those days girls usually only had household chores um and they wore the big um big corsets and tight lacings but mary Mm -hmm. who was uh, mary's mother 
believed that those things were so unhealthy. <laughs> so not only that, but her parents um, were also um, the founders of an elementary school. Oh, Her father was very bright, and so was her mother, and they were both educated. And so they started this elementary school, okay. and it was actually the first free schoolhouse in Oswego. Oh. They were devout Christians. They weren't Quakers, but the um, church that they went to was loosely related to the Quakers. But this branch felt like the Quakers were getting too liberal, and so they were more um, more into the scriptures and they, thing. you know, and felt that they were even more devout, and yet they held these incredibly for those times and for that culture progressive ideas mm-hmm. about women being educated. So Mary and two of her sisters attended the Fowley Seminary in New York after they graduated from their parents' elementary school. Now this school that they went to, Fowley Seminary in New York, was also considered a progressive school because, and here it comes. They offered higher education to women. Shock. (laughs) Dismay. Here we go again. As well as young men. So here's the two shock factors. One is that they offered a higher education to women. Second factor was that they had men and women in the same classrooms. Oh, wow. You know, so this was We know what a fight that was for some of the women we've looked at. Right. To get equal classroom time. Right. Alongside men. Yeah. Also, um. Valley Seminary in New York emphasized hygiene, which was in those days considered a very, again, back to that word, progressive idea. The idea that you should wash your hands, that you should keep your rooms clean, all of that was considered so um, almost liberal. You know, what do you mean, wash my hands? How dare you tell me to wash my Mm -hmm. hands? Now, if you remember um, when we talked about Elizabeth Blackwell, that she also put an emphasis on hygiene. Yep. And that was one of the reasons that she was ridiculed and persecuted, mm-hmm. but she recognized the importance of hygiene. I mean, think about it. In those days, a germ was considered something that was manufactured by the scientific community to you know, hoodwink the public. They didn't believe in washing their hands. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand the dangers of mold in the basements mold or so bad. algae in yeah. your water. And they didn't understand you know, the need for running water. It's interesting that you find all of these prohibitions against mold and against you know algae and these things in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. You have to tear out your walls if right. there's mold. Which makes sense to us now. <laughs> and even cleaning your hands, washing your yeah. hands regularly. And remember how the, it had to be over running water? Like it yeah, had to be poured yeah, yeah, onto yeah. the priest's hands. So, um, but these ideas, it's, it's interesting because they are biblical and they are helpful. Hmm. Anyway, while at seminary, Mary took a personal interest in anatomy and physiology. So her father had also been interested in these subjects, and he had many books on the subject, and he loved to teach this in his elementary school. And so as a child, Mary poured over whatever book she could get her hands on. And in her father's library, there were mainly books on anatomy and physiology. (laughs) And and so she started reading these as soon as she learned to read. These were the books that she read. I mean, she was so desperate to read, and that's what was available beside the classics, right? (laughs) So imagine reading medical books as a pastime. Like, oh, I just feel like a medical book. I want to read about the heart or I want to read about the brain. I want to read about the liver. Oh, my gosh. How far we've fallen. Yes. (laughs) That was Mary. Now, it was during those years that Mary began to realize 
during her school years, the prejudice aimed at women. In Oswego, she had been sheltered in her parents' house, and then she'd gone to her parents' school. So she never realized the full extent of injustice toward women because she had been you know, raised in this equal opportunity house, but now thrust into even the seminary that was considered progressive, she realized that there was a lot of uh, prejudice, a lot of injustice toward women. She saw that the law looked the other way when a man beat his wife, and this just bothered her so much. Or when a young girl was taken into prostitution, there was no outcry from the community or even from you know, the police departments or the mayor. And there were very, very few jobs open to women beyond teaching elementary school. So Mary wanted to go to medical school, but she didn't have the money for it. So she taught uh, elementary school in Mineto, New York, and she saved all of her money up until she had enough money sometime around um, when she was 30 years old to go to Syracuse Medical College. She was the only woman in her class, Mm. but she graduated in 1855 at the top of her class. Mary got married to one of the fellow students. His name was Albert Miller on November 16, 1855. And at her wedding, she refused to wear a traditional wedding dress. And instead, she wore a short skirt over trousers. Oh, my gosh. On her wedding day. She also (laughs) kept her maiden name and refused to have the word obey in her vows. Whoa, hardcore. (laughs) Yes. So this is progressive. I think maybe she didn't fully trust Albert, which was a good idea that you'll find out why in just a second. But they were both doctors, and they set up a clinic together, a a medical practice. But it didn't do very well because of the prejudice against Mary, a woman, you know, treating patients. And New York wasn't quite ready for it at that time. If she's there with her husband, that might have helped cushion it, but— You know, I wonder how much it was really Mary and how much it was the fact that Albert Miller had quite a few affairs with his patients. Oh, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. He was what you might call a predator or a seducer. (sighs) So they divorced because of her husband's constant infidelities. Mm. She was just like, I can't live like this. Uh, After the practice dissolved and their marriage dissolved, Mary continued to practice at different infirmaries. And Mary also wrote articles protesting the fashion of the day. She thought she could change it with these articles, you know, change public opinion. The long skirts with the layers of petticoats made it hard for women to move. And she said they spread dust, dirt, and grime with their hymns. Mm -hmm. And they did. It was interesting. Mm -hmm. I have a friend named Karen who's English. And years ago, we were in York on a street called The Shambles. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been there. It it looks like Dickens. It looks like, you know, how the streets would have been during the time of Dickens. And I remember turning to Karen and saying, don't you ever wish you lived during the time of Charles Dickens? And she said, what? With people pouring their sewage out their windows (laughs) and it being running down the public streets and getting our hymns of our skirts all filthy. And I thought, (laughs) oh. And so when I was reading this and these articles, Think about the grime that the long skirts were picking up. I mean, they were picking up some pretty gross Horse things. Horse manure and... Right. Ugh, yeah. And 
you know, and human, human excrement <laughs> as they would walk down the streets, and then they would take that into the houses. Sick. So they were um, unhygienic. She was right. Mm-hmm. This was her pet peeve all her life was how unhygienic women's fashion uh, was. She wrote articles protesting the fashion and felt that fashion is what kept women in a helpless condition, Hmm. uh, their vanity, that it was their vanity to wear these tight corsets, which were so bad for their bodies. Oh, your rib cage. Right. Yeah, all of that. It would misshape Mm -hmm. even and cause all sorts of problems. And as a doctor, she saw these Issues reminds me. It's like the like the Western version of the foot binding in China. Exactly, just prohibited women. Very right. interesting. So she herself wore plain skirts of varying lengths with trousers underneath that were held up by suspenders. So she usually wore like just a long skirt without any petticoats with trousers underneath, and that was just her outfit. She was often attacked, and simply because of the way she chose to dress. Mm. Once, when she was still a school teacher, she was attacked by a gang of boys who threw eggs and other projectiles at her. She was criticized by fellow students, and her patients often felt uncomfortable, even though her skirts usually covered her trousers completely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fact that she didn't wear layers of petticoats put a lot of people off. In fact, she was even arrested in New Orleans because she did not wear the traditional attire of her day. Now, it's not that she was just wearing trousers. She had a skirt over the trousers. Yeah. But the fact that the trousers could peek below the skirt. She did, at the end of her life, start wearing a man's suit and felt like it had modesty, dignity, and was easier for her as a doctor to serve her patients in. And she she actually was trying to bring men's suits into style for women. Wow. You know, we look at that now and we go, yeah. I mean, women started no, wearing I wear jeans. Yeah. <laughs> suits like that. I mean, I remember Catherine Hepburn in movies from the mm. 1930s and 40s mm-hmm. wearing these suits and they were considered very chic. But in Mary's time, it it was considered very um, progressive. Very inappropriate. Inappropriate. Yeah. That's a good word for it. So Mary was a staunch abolitionist and volunteered her medical service at the outbreak of the Civil War. However... Rather than recognizing her services as a doctor, they said, well, you can serve in the capacity of a nurse. By this time, Mary was a practiced surgeon and one of the best surgeons. But they said, no, mm -mm, you can come in as a nurse, but we will not let you practice as a doctor. So Mary had been practicing both medicine and surgery for over 10 years by this point. But she said, all right, I'll do it. Whatever I can do to help the soldiers and the people. So she served as a nurse at the first Battle of Bull Run. Wow. At the Patton Office Hospital in Washington, D.C. Then she served as an unpaid surgeon near the Union front lines at the Battle of Fredericksburg and Chattanooga after the Battle of Chickamauga. So she became the first female surgeon to actually be employed by the U.S. Army. She frequently crossed battle lines to treat civilians. I mean, she just she didn't care if you were from the north or the south. Mm. She was going to help you. And especially uh, people who got caught in the crossfires. She was helping. It didn't matter if you were black, white, southern, or Yankee. She mm. was going to help you. She was captured and accused of being a Yankee spy right after she helped a Confederate doctor perform an amputation on a Confederate soldier. 
So here she is helping actually the South and helping the soldier, and she gets arrested. And she's held in Castle Thunder Prison in Richmond, Virginia for four months from April to August. In prison, she refused, guess what? To wear the prison uniform for women. Are you surprised? (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. (laughs) And she insisted on wearing her trousers. Trousers, that's right. So she was traded during a prisoner exchange between the North and the South. She was actually traded for a Confederate doctor. Mm. And the North wanted her back, which is good. That's cool. And she went from there to serve as a supervisor of a female prison in Louisville, Kentucky, and then as the head of an orphanage in Tennessee. So she thought having served um, and been in prison that she could serve as a supervisor for prison and improve uh, the conditions and everything else. Everything she'd seen as a prisoner, yeah. So after the war, she was given a pension for partial muscular atrophy that she developed while serving time in prison in the South. Mm -hmm. I mean, the prison that she was held at was just despicable, and the conditions were just Mm -hmm. terrible. And so she felt like her muscles began to atrophy, and so she actually sued the Southern government, and she got uh, reparations. She became a writer and lecturer promoting health care, hygiene, actually, and temperance. And we talked about uh, earlier, those on an earlier program, we talked about the concern in those times Mm. for temperance. Yeah. Because, again, women had no rights. They didn't have the right to vote. And their husbands were allowed to beat them up. It was legal for a husband to hit his wife and injure his wife. Uh, There was, you know, he could break her leg. He could break her arm. um, He could do anything but kill her and still not have to go to prison, still not be fined. So Mm -hmm. she, like other women of her time, equated the violence with alcohol, which there really is a strong, strong link between drunkenness and violence. There just is. I mean, people do things when they're drunk that they would never do when they were sober, and they say things that they wouldn't. So she was uh, very big in the temperance movement. However, a lot of the more well-to-do women didn't really like to be associated with her, even in the suffragette movement because of her trousers. That's crazy. It's just the one thing, huh? Yeah, the trousers. (laughs) And yet it was also the one thing that she refused to give up. And so she also sought, of course, to reform the dress code for women because she felt that it went hand in hand with health care and hygiene. When asked about why she wore men's clothes, she replied, I don't wear men's clothes. I only wear my own clothes. (laughs) In other words, she didn't say, I'm not trying to copy men. I'm trying to wear what I feel is most hygienic, Mm -hmm. most comfortable, and gives me the greatest mobility to do surgeries. It's very practical. Very practical. I think that was... The word I was searching for. So she tried to register to vote again and again. Every year, whenever there was an election, she would apply to vote. And every year, she'd be escorted out and told she couldn't. And she was almost like, um, she was outspoken, but she also matched everything with her action. Mm. You know, she, she dressed. She wasn't afraid of rejection or public opinion coming against her. She was very very true to what she deeply believed in. And she also was an ardent Christian. 
which I think is so important to bring up because a lot of people discounted her Christianity because she wore trousers. And they would say, oh, you're wearing men's clothes. You know, and in Deuteronomy, it says not to wear men's clothes. And that's why she would say, I'm not wearing men's clothes. Yeah. I'm wearing my own clothes. So her tire put her at odds, even with key women in the suffragette movement, as I mentioned before. However, in England, she became a very popular figure and was very warmly received and appreciated wow. when she went there to lecture on hygiene and women's rights and temperance. Very interesting. Isn't that in England interesting? of all places. Yeah. England of all places. They just, especially when she spoke on hygiene and was saying, you know, these are not good for That's true. Because they had Florence Nightingale by that time. And they, yeah, so that makes sense. Maybe a little more open there. Mm-hmm. And plus the nurses needed to be uh, mobile, right? Mm-hmm. To do what they were doing. And by this time too, when she became a lecturer, the hemlines were rising. <laughs> um, you might, if you've ever seen Downton Abbey, you can watch the hemlines rise. And again, the reason the hemlines were rising was for mobility for mm-hmm. women. And again, after uh, the Civil War, petticoats begin to go out of style. You know, also, this is crazy. During the first performance of Handel's Messiah in England, it was so crowded that the women's petticoats got in the way. And so they started saying, you this is impractical. You need to get rid of these. So, yeah, there was weird these things happened. So that might be why she was warmly uh, regarded in England. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> they remember Handel's they Messiah knew. from the 1700s. <laughs> yes. So she spoke on the right for women to vote before the U.S. House of Representatives in both 1912 and 1914. So she had an audience there. She also petitioned the U.S. government for the Medal of Honor. It had never, ever been given to a woman before that time. In fact, I don't know that it's been given to a woman yet i think she might be the only woman who ever got it wow and um they gave it to her in recognition of her service in the civil war because again she was hired for time as a surgeon and it was presented to her by president andrew johnson himself wow in 1916 though however the u.s created a penchant for recipients of this honor But at the same time, they decided to set up a standard or written requirements for receiving this honor. So they said, well, you have to be, I think one of them was a man. Uh, You have to have been employed, like receiving money. And they put all these um, stringent requirements. And in doing so, they revoked over 911 recipients of the Medal of Honor. Doesn't that seem just so... That's a lot. So wrong. Yeah. But I think the whole reason was they didn't want to give him a pension. It was greed. I mean, it's so wrong. Oh, man. So one of those recipients, of course, was Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. And another recipient was Buffalo Bill. What? They took back his Medal of Honor, too. Wow. (laughs) Interestingly enough, just looking ahead, in 1977, President Jimmy Carter posthumously restored the Medal of Honor to Dr. Walker for her outstanding service and sacrifice during the Civil War. Mm. Now, Mary had believed that she was entitled to this medal because she had gone into enemy territory to care for the suffering inhabitants when no man had the courage to do so for fear of being imprisoned. 
That's quite a statement, isn't it? Wow. She said, I deserve this because I was willing to help anybody at the sacrifice of my own life or even imprisonment. And a lot of the other doctors wouldn't do that. So I deserve the Medal of Honor. You know, she probably was looking at the others like, you gave them a medal? What? Mm. You know, they didn't go in. They didn't risk their life. They were afraid of imprisonment, and she wasn't. Mm. Now, Mary Walker died at home on February 21st, 1919, after a prolonged illness, and she was 86 years old. And get this. You'll probably guess this. She was buried in a... What, in her trousers? In a suit? In a suit. Very good. (laughs) In her trousers. So interestingly enough, the year after her death, so we're talking 1920, Mm. do you remember what happened? This is post-World War I. Uh, the flu? The Spanish flu? No, the 19th Amendment. Oh, 19th Amendment. Okay. The 19th Amendment was almost exactly a year after her death. Mm. And the 19th Amendment gives, and this is very important for all of us women to know, mm. because it gave women the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And all of that that she had worked so hard for, that she had written about, that she had lectured on, that she had fought for. And you think about... Her life, you know, at 86, she died and probably feeling like she hadn't accomplished much. I mean, her medal was taken away from her. Think about that. She had been ridiculed and persecuted for wearing trousers because she said they were more hygienic and better for women. She had been refused the right to vote, even though she had gone before the U.S. Senate twice. Mm -hmm. And you think of all these things that she died having not accomplished having not accomplished, even at 86, working tirelessly to these ends and not accomplishing it. And then just right after her death, a year after her death, all of that began to change. Mm. All of it. Mm. You know, by the 1920s, women began to put on trousers. And now we don't think twice Mm -hmm. about wearing trousers. Now, I will tell you this. When I was a, a child, when I was in school, and so I was in school in the 1960s to the 1970s, um, up until junior high, girls weren't allowed to wear trousers to school. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Wow. So up until I think it was 1972 in Newport Beach in Costa Mesa, you couldn't wear trousers to school if you were a girl. Now, however, you could if it was a rainy day. There was an exception, and that didn't (laughs) happen until 1971. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. It really hasn't been that long. No, it really think has about not been that long. Hmm. And so I just think Mary Walker, even though she was a character, um, she really accomplished quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So, wow. And that's why I think she's a woman worth knowing. For sure. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, I just love the discovery of these women that are worth knowing because she really fought for us. You know, she fought so that we have the right to vote. She fought so we could wear jeans, right? And, and and hygiene. She fought for some really, really great things. And when she fought for them in her culture, she was considered progressive. Mm-hmm. And, and eccentric, probably. And eccentric, yeah. definitely eccentric. And yet she was this brilliant surgeon who crossed enemy lines, was willing to be imprisoned. I mean, she really, really lived a sacrificial life mm-hmm. for others. And you know, didn't even have a happy marriage. And I just think she's just an amazing woman. But I'm, I'm thinking how many times because somebody is unconventional, we just dismiss them. Mm-hmm. Or we take one thing that they do that's a little strange and we, we cancel them. You know, we're living in the cancel generation. Or something that's not even a biblical issue. Right. Like wearing trousers was never like 
Yeah. Well, they would have said the men's clothing thing, but it's like, wait a minute. Let's, you know, take she a step back say, here. These are my clothes, yeah, not men's totally. clothes. totally. And that's not the reason she was wearing them. It that's wasn't right. really what they were. It was a strange interpretation. It really was. Man. A misinterpretation. Yes, yeah, there you go. So anyway, that's why I really think that um, Mary uh, Walker was a woman worth knowing. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> so that's it for, for, for me for this okay. week. All right. Very good. But I yeah, really... Thanks for joining us. Yes. And oh, hey, yes. if you have, I know, right? We don't want to forget this part. That's right. If you have somebody that you want us to talk about, we have received some of those requests. Don't worry. We do see them. Uh, we've got them in our list, our little bank of, of women to explore and research. Rosalind Goforth. Definitely. Oh, that one get just got her. written in about. Yep. Yeah, yep. for sure. She's been on our list for a while, we promise. Yes, but <laughs> right now I'm finishing up the doctors. I've got at least two more to talk about. <laughs> And then we're finishing up. Jasmine's already moving into the. Uh, We've got like, yeah, early church martyrs and the mystics, mystics and yes. Middle Ages and all that stuff. So, so she's already moving ahead <laughs> and I'm still lagging a little bit behind. I've got two more here. And then I'll probably be moving more into some of the missionaries. Like, yeah, And you do love Rosalind Goforth. So I, I think that's one you should definitely Rosalind. do. Yes. yes. I, <laughs> Jasmine knows that about me. Yes. I do. So, yes, we do receive those folks. And so if you uh, know a woman that or that we should know about, um, somebody to suggest, whether it's, you know, just a book you've read, a story you know about, or somebody personally in yes. your life, please. Well, we'd love to read little us know. excerpts about women who have influenced you mm. spiritually or even inspired you. We want those. It could be an aunt. It could be a neighbor, uh, somebody who prayed for you. We want those stories. We'd like to feature little snippets of your stories um, every week when we do this podcast. But so far, we haven't gotten your snippets. So we want your snippets. Uh, this is the place for snippets. It's a snippet. Good so, word. Where do they send their snippets? Well, Cheryl, they would send those to our email, which is wwk at cccm.com. All right. Obviously, that stands for Women Worth Knowing, WWK at CCCM.com. You can also, if you go to the website, women.cccm.com or to Cheryl's website, graciouswords.com, there's links on there if you want to use those as well, if that's easier for you. So, And we love your it. letters. We love hearing from you. So please like us on whatever venue you listen to this podcast. And thank you for joining us this week for another Woman Worth Knowing. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.